Costs are going up everywhere from the grocery store to the gas station. Up 7% this year. The worst inflation in 40 years. Americans are upset about it. Inflation has eclipsed the coronavirus as their number one concern. Used to buy bacon for $2.40 a pound. It spiked up to $6. As inflation rose, government experts told us, don't worry, it's transitory. I don't anticipate that inflation is going to be a problem. In the end, it will be transitory. Now they say, I'm ready to retire the word transitory. So what went wrong? Some politicians blame greedy corporations. This is about price gouging. Corporate greed. Corporate greed. Greed is constant. Economist David Henderson studies inflation. If it's greed, how do we explain when prices fall? Do oil companies just suddenly decide, I'm going to be less greedy? That's why the price gouging claim is silly. Prices change because of supply and demand. Inflation results from too much money chasing too few goods. So if government's spending more money, that's more money chasing too few goods. The motion is adopted. Government is spending more money. $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. But because government has no money of its own, extra spending means politicians must borrow more, tax more, or create money out of thin air by printing it. If a counterfeiter prints money and spends it, everyone understands what's wrong with that. Well, the Federal Reserve essentially is doing the same thing. In the last few years, the Fed has printed more money than ever in history. That makes the money we have less valuable. So not only do I need more of these to buy something, but also people who save money lose what they've saved. At today's inflation rate, $10,000 in a savings account will, in just 20 years, be worth only $2,300. If you were counting on that money for retirement, you're screwed. And yet today's politicians on both sides want to spend more. $738 billion in defense funding. If we pass the other two things I'm trying to get done, we will, in fact, reduce inflation. Reduce inflation. Reduce inflation. Biden's wrong. There's no economic theory that says when the government spends a huge amount more money, prices fall. But people are worried and many want government to do something. If that leads us to price controls, it will be horrible. Price controls have been tried before. A freeze on all prices. Seems like a simple solution. It's just intuitive to people. Yeah, inflation, okay. Pass a law. Put a lid on prices. It is intuitive, and that's where people's intuition goes wrong. Because prices are not just money. They're information. Prices are signals. People see prices as these artificial things. We economists see prices as things that guide people both as buyers and producers. And if you mess that up, you've really messed up the economy. Price changes tell buyers what to avoid and sellers what to produce. When the price of face masks rose two years ago, that inspired producers to make more. When fewer people flew, it led to a cheap price bonanza. Flexible pricing gets suppliers to produce what people really need. You think we have shortages now? Wait till we get price controls. When President Nixon imposed them, that's what caused those lineups for gasoline, which really were destructive. It's ridiculous waiting online here. We waited in line for hours. 
Did you get gas today? Where'd you find it? Where do I go? Price controls are like saying it's really cold. I'm going to solve that by breaking the thermometer. This says it's freezing. I don't like being cold, so I'll fix it. But it's actually worse than that because breaking the thermometer at least doesn't make the temperature get colder. Whereas price controls cause actual shortages. Like empty supermarket shelves. People in Venezuela experienced that and the price controls didn't stop inflation. In fact, it got much worse. It's the oil rich country's inflation rate at 270%. 700% this year. 400,000%. In Zimbabwe. President Robert Mugabe decided to change his country's economic policy. He simply printed more money. 35 quadrillion Zim dollars. That's what one US dollar will cost you in Zimbabwe. At the end, they were printing $100 trillion bills. Of course, nothing like this has happened here yet, and it most probably won't. But with politicians from both parties always wanting to spend more, it could happen here. Thanks for watching our video. If you enjoyed it, please hit the like button and subscribe. Then you'll see our next one. Chop shops, uh, drug trafficking, the garbage, rats. San Francisco has become San Francisco? The town I love is sick, John. Michael Schellenberger says his ideas wrecked his town. I moved out to San Francisco when I was a young radical to work on political causes. And while I still support a lot of that work, it just went too far. Brazen thieves emptied out the Louis Vuitton store in Union Square. Come on, Come on, right now, John, you can go into a drugstore and steal $950 worth of items and nobody will do anything. They won't enforce the law against you. Join me. That happened because San Francisco's politicians had a noble idea. Join us in rejecting the notion that to be free, we must cage others. California passed something called Proposition 47. It eliminated penalties for many crimes. Instead of investing in prisons, Proposition 47 would divert $1 billion to K-12 education, mental health, and drug treatment programs. America does lock up a higher percentage of our people disproportionately black people, than any other country. Prop 47 getting a lot of support from a lot of celebrities. That's Jay-Z at one of his concerts talking about the importance of Prop 47. The jails are overcrowded. People don't get better being in jail. A lot of the people who steal maybe just needed the stuff. The state made a decision. We're not going to lock you up. None of us want mass incarceration but that was a recipe for disaster. Knowing they won't be jailed, thieves steal right in front of security guards. In addition, San Francisco's filled with little tent cities where drug users light up in public, confident no one will interfere. Cheryl Mott, she says she's been on the streets of San Francisco because of how easy it is for her to buy and use drugs here. But even she wants the city to do something. Uh, my opinion, they need to crack down down here. You smoke a crack every day, you say? For 12 years, out here. Yeah, because it's more lenient out here. I'm from San Jose. If I went to San Jose to this, I'd be in jail. Other cities do treat people like her differently. They don't let people use drugs in public, and they built sufficient homeless shelters. Bizarrely, some San Francisco activists argue against shelters, saying, Everybody has the right to their own apartment, 
but that's completely crazy because it costs $750,000 to build a single unit apartment in San Francisco. I once reported that San Francisco's regulation increased homelessness by limiting the size of buildings. My video said that was one of the big reasons for this. It's not true. It's not true. I mean, if it were true that expensive places made for homelessness, then why don't we see large open air drug scenes in Carmel? Why don't we see large open drug scenes in many fancy neighborhoods? Homelessness is just a function of whether or not you allow people to camp in public or not. And in Carmel, the police kick them out? Yeah, of course. I'm more sympathetic to the argument that people have a right to be outdoors and we don't have a right to force them off the street if they aren't directly threatening anybody. We should defend those rights because that's part of our freedom. But you don't have a right to shoot heroin at the public park. We allow drinking in public. We actually regulate it very firmly. The only thing that's worked is to have consequences for people's behaviors. But in San Francisco, the consequences often fall on innocent people. Cars are broken into an average of 74 times a day. The people in charge aren't embarrassed? The San Francisco officials I talked to are very embarrassed. They're very defensive. They don't know what to do because there's a very powerful progressive constituency that insists that people who are categorized as victims should not have to follow the law. These progressive activists, these were you. You were one of them. I was. I was a progressive activist for a very long time and only recently in researching this book did I decide I couldn't use that label anymore. His new book says progressives ruin cities. Progressivism has become the abdication of personal responsibility. Well, it's pretty much always meant that. Were you, were you dumb then and you've wised up? <laughs> uh, you, you got me a little bit. I mean, uh, yes. It's time that the reign of criminals who are destroying our city, it is time for it to come to an end. Even San Francisco's progressive mayor has now changed her mind. While I worked on this video, she announced that from now on, San Francisco's policing will be more aggressive. And less tolerant of all the bullshit that has destroyed our city. We'll see what they really do. Now, I don't think people should be locked up for being homeless or using drugs. But when people steal or threaten other people, they should be punished. Protecting us is one of the few things government is supposed to do. Thanks for watching our video. If you want to help us cover more stories like this, hit that button. Tonight, a record-breaking explosion of Omicron infections. Omicron is driving a new wave of fear. Hospitals all across this country are filling up at rates we've yet to see. We need the state to step in. States have stepped in with school closing and mandates. But do these rules actually work? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and, and, and expecting a different result. The governor of Florida will not do what experts and the media want him to do. The state's governor is refusing to impose any new restrictions. Some governors are putting their own political gain ahead of children's lives. Politicians usually back down if they're called killers, but not DeSantis. Instead, he criticizes lockdown states. They're letting hysteria drive them to doing really damaging things. They want to protect kids, Governor. What do you want? Listening to the media 
Florida's policies made COVID worse. Florida leads the nation in new COVID cases. Now they're the worst. We have officially entered Florida airspace. This anti-DeSantis ad treats flying to Florida like a horror movie. As Governor DeSantis stated, while you're within state lines, you do not have to wear a mask. But the reality is that Florida has had fewer deaths than many other states. Florida, despite letting people do most anything they want, is pretty average in deaths. And Florida has more old people than most states. Per old person, Florida has fewer COVID deaths. The cases were exploding and he decided to just sit back and do nothing. The media distort by omission. They attack Florida when deaths are high. Florida leads the nation in new COVID cases. And ignore Florida when they're low. But hilariously, if a camera follows those pro-shutdown politicians. Don't come to me and say you're anti-shutdown when you're spreading COVID all over the place, potentially. We learn that even they seem to realize that Florida is no more dangerous than other states. Here's AOC partying in Florida hugging people without a mask. Congressman Eric Swalwell tweeted, Republican liars prolonged the epidemic, your vacations canceled. Two days later, here he is in Miami. If I had a dollar for every lockdown politician who decided to escape to Florida over the last two years, I'd be a pretty doggone wealthy man. I vacation in Florida too. Lots of people do. It's another reason Florida's economy is doing well. Its unemployment rate is far below New York's and some other heavy lockdown states. So can we generalize from this and say shutdowns and mask mandates are useless? No. Around America, there is just not much of a pattern. Yes, strict mandate states like New York, New Jersey, and Michigan do have some of the highest death counts. But California also had strict mandates and fewer deaths. The only clear trend is that while lockdowns didn't stop COVID, they did destroy opportunity. California's unemployment is the highest in the nation. We've eliminated lots of jobs. Government has grown at a cancerous, I believe a malignant rate. Economist Don Boudreau. We don't have to continue to upend human life uh, in, our, in our quest to eliminate COVID, which, which can't happen anyway. How many more lives do we have to lose? So politicians stop pushing mandates that turn Americans against each other. It's not admitting defeat, it's admitting reality. We learn to live with COVID in the same way that we learn to live with many, many of the other pathogens. Living with COVID need not be terrible. The bacteria that caused the Black Death is still circulating in the human population. A handful of people every year still die of it. A case of bubonic plague. It's sad, but one day every one of us is gonna be done in by something. And that's why it's time to end the restrictions, he says. And now that we have vaccines and pills that make COVID less deadly, open up. We go about our lives normally. Traveling, going to school unmasked, uh, going to parties, dancing, hooking up, going to weddings, sporting events, uh, we, we will live life normally again and be joyous. Hopefully humanity will come to its senses soon. Thanks for watching our video. Now here's a longer than usual interview with Senator Rand Paul. Paul talks about things that 
I think are important, like the appeal of socialism. He also often questions what the establishment says. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement? That's important, especially during this pandemic. You claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan. Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. While most in government treat Anthony Fauci like America's medical god, Paul accuses him of hiding the fact that he approved U.S. government funding that ended up at China's Wuhan lab, funds that were used to do gain-of-function experiments, experiments that make a virus more contagious or more deadly. Take an animal virus and you increase its transmissibility to humans, right. you're saying that's not gain-of-function? Yeah, that is correct. And, and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about. It's not likely that those experiments caused COVID. But they are dangerous, and now new evidence backs up arguments Paul's made for years. The NIH now admits that they've been funding this gain-of-function research. Nobody but you seems very freaked out about this. You know, I think why it's important is not only just for assessing what happened and how this pandemic arose, but making sure it doesn't happen again. I don't know that we'll ever be 100% certain that this came from a lab, but I think we have a great deal of evidence saying that it did. They studied 80,000 animals from the wet markets and tested them for COVID and none of them had COVID. The other strong evidence that this came from a lab is they looked at 9,000 aliquots of blood from Chinese individuals who had flu symptoms in 2019. If this came gradually from animals, you'd expect that it would first show up in humans gradually and then maybe grow exponentially. So of the 9,000 samples of blood, you'd expect at least a couple hundred people had COVID. It turned out no, none of them had COVID. So there's a lot of evidence that this came from the lab. When Dr. Anthony Fauci is asked about funding the lab, he's still in favor of funding their lab, but he's also still in favor of doing this gain-of-function research in the U.S., which I think is very dangerous and could lead to another pandemic if we have another leak. Right. Even if this didn't come from the lab, the idea of gain-of-function research deserves debate, but it's not getting it. We've been asking for a committee hearing, and a committee hearing isn't much, but that would at least be the beginning, a committee hearing to investigate uh, the origins of this, but also to investigate whether or not we should be funding this type of research. There was an op-ed written by a guy named Kevin Esfeld. He's a professor from MIT. He's not a partisan that I know of. For all I know, he's a liberal Democrat. But he wrote in the Washington Post, that this type of research threatens our civilization, that it's a risk that we shouldn't be taking. Why aren't more people interested? It's really shocking that no Democrat is interested. This has become so polarized that you're either, you know, completely in the bag with Fauci or completely opposed to him. And there is no one wanting to actually get to the truth of where this came from or understand that this could happen again. The other professor that we've followed and looked at with this is a guy named Ebright from Rutgers. He's been fighting this battle since 2004. So he's felt like since 2004, we were in danger of creating viruses in the lab that could create pandemics. And we have not had one hearing on this. And so I'm going to keep fighting for it. But it also is why elections have consequences. If we win in 2022 and I win re-election, I could well be the chairman of the health committee and we will investigate this at that point. Right now, I have no power because we're in the minority. In the majority, the election does make a difference who runs the committees. Fauci was asked about people who criticize him, like you, and he said, But they're really criticizing science because I represent science. 
You know, I think that's an incredibly arrogant attitude and sort of, to me, more reminiscent of the medieval church that the government represented and decided what was science and what was correct science. In those days, it was that the sun went around the earth and not vice versa. And they were adamant about that. I think anytime you have government dogma saying they are science or government bureaucrats who claim that this is the one and perfect truth and it comes from me and I represent it, I think we should run headlong away from that. Science is, is something like politics and something about the law. It's about disputation. You bring your set of facts, you present them to a conference. And if you've ever been to a scientific conference, boy, there's sometimes some yelling and screaming back and forth. There are people saying, no, no, that's wrong. And what about this evidence? And that's sort of what peer review is. Your peers look at this, they argue back and forth, and they say, do your facts, and they challenge you. And sometimes they say, go back to the drawing board. We want more, one more set of experiments to prove the point you're making. We're not sure it's true. That's the way science has always been. It's never been about one person, like Fauci saying, I am the science. Not only is it arrogant, it's incredibly dangerous for uh, progress that might be stymied by that. You fought the mandates. But at what point is government justified if, if a disease is really contagious in then saying, yes, everybody must get vaccinated? I think government can be involved in giving advice, but I'm not for mandates, um, particularly Ever? not for something. No, I'm not really. What if it's airborne Ebola it's killing yeah. huge numbers of people? My guess is that people are pretty smart and people will make the right decision. Even now, see, the big lie that's being promulgated is, is that people are not being vaccinated. It's the opposite of the truth. I looked at the CDC website this morning. Over age 75, 97% of Americans have been vaccinated. Between age 65 and 74, 99% of Americans have voluntarily chosen to be at. We are not stupid. The whole idea of collectivism is that people are too stupid to make their own decisions. Individuals will make rational decisions and do. Between the ages of 50 and 64, 87% of Americans are vaccinated. Overwhelmingly, we are vaccinated. And the only reason they think we're short is because they're discounting the other folks who have also had the disease naturally. The conservative estimates by the CDC think that 150 million Americans have now had COVID. So between those who have had COVID and those who have been vaccinated, we overwhelmingly are protected by this from this disease. And the thing is, is those who are not protected, who are suffering, those who don't get vaccinated are suffering for their decisions. But the dissemination of the disease isn't really being stopped by the vaccine. The dissemination of the disease, particularly Omicron, is probably being disseminated whether you're vaccinated or not. Some people are stupid. Is there... No point when the government does have a right to, to force a vaccination? I'm not forever forcing someone to take medical care. I think that's the individual's decision. I think by and large that uh, people do make wise decisions. I think it's an elitist point of view that says that people are too stupid to make their own decisions. And I think the evidence right now is that overwhelmingly those at risk have definitely made the right decision. But here's the reason you're, I'm against the mandates. If you're 10 years old, your chance of dying is virtually zero. If you're 80 years old, your chance of dying is 10,000 times greater. So really the advice I would give to a 10 year old is different than, a, than an 80 year old. The other thing is, is one thing we don't know for certain is if you've already had COVID and you're a 10 year old, is the immune response that you get from being vaccinated perhaps too much for your system? Is it, is it perhaps related to the myocarditis or pericarditis that can occur? And I don't think we yet know that, why? because they excluded children from the testing who had already had COVID. 
So the one group that I'd want to know about were excluded from the testing on safety. So we don't yet know if you've already had COVID, whether it's a good idea for a child to be vaccinated or whether there's a heightened risk for myocarditis. We do know that the death rate among children is less than the seasonal flu. And we never mandated that kids got vaccinated for the seasonal flu. We've got like 49 different vaccines. For goodness sakes, can we not be for some choice for parents and kids? I'm for choice for parents and kids, but... I keep coming back to this because what about the extreme case, just as a thought experiment? What if this were much more deadly and there are some stupid people who expose others? The 10-year-old may not get hurt himself, but he might pass it on to somebody else. And we do reduce the chance of spread if a lot of people get vaccines. Is, what if it's airborne Ebola or something? Does government ever have the right to say, you must take this medicine? My answer would be no. And what I would say is if there's airborne Ebola, I would like you to find me the person that doesn't want to get vaccinated. If they don't want to get vaccinated, guess what? They're going to die so quickly. One of the reasons Ebola is not a big problem is because you die so quickly, it never spreads outside of villages or rarely has so far. But uh, no, I think that people can make wise decisions and I'm not for the government making them. The problem is, is once you let government in the door to make these decisions, they make onerous decisions that are not really wise or based in science. So even looking at the mandate on masks, for example, one, the masks don't work very well, particularly the cloth mask. But if you look at Sweden, they have no mask mandate and they have 1.8 million children. They've had no deaths in that age group uh, over the last year and a half and they have not worn masks. If you look at the teachers, there's no increased incidence of infection among the teachers versus other professions. So the entire mandate of wearing masks in schools in the United States, there's no science behind it and we shouldn't be doing it. But that's the danger of letting this go into the hands of individuals is that individuals can make mistakes, they have biases, and their mandates could come without a scientific justification. So I think that if you look at whether or not we should uh, force mandate on COVID without question, absolutely not. It does continue to kill people and the number of people getting infected keeps going up. Yeah, more people died this year with the vaccine than without. So there's not a great deal of argument that any of the mandates are going to change the course of this. I think that ultimately, the only thing that affects the course of the disease are two things, vaccination and also natural immunity. But you have people like Dr. Fauci who are completely and purposefully ignoring natural immunity and because of that, that's why they think we need to mandate the vaccine, because they think, oh, we don't have enough immunity within the community. But it turns out with 150 million people have had it and the extraordinary voluntary vaccination rate, I think we're actually where we need to be and that time will tell. We don't yet know what uh, will happen with the newest variant, but the facts so far look like it will be uh, much less deadly. Just briefly shifting gears, inflation. You oppose the Build Back Better Act, but... I listened to Rachel Maddow. Way more support for kids to get free meals at school and money to fix up crumbling and out-of-date school buildings. Pell grants that help people pay for college. Hearing aids finally being covered by Medicare. We need more teachers, people's ability to get help at home. How do you oppose these things? There's been an eternal battle, and there always is, between government trying to offer free things, baubles, you name it, anything free. And it always is very easy for people to say, well, I like free things, you know, $1,400 check, $2,500 check. I like free things. 
But we have to have second order thinking where we understand what happens. What are the consequences of passing out free things? One, we have to borrow the money. And as we borrow the money, the Federal Reserve prints up the money to pay for it and you get inflation. So the same people that you're offering the free things to ultimately are the ones who pay for this through inflation. Inflation hits those who are working class and those on retired income harder than anybody else. So really you're offering people free things, but it's a bait and switch. In the end, the people getting the free things pay for them, but there's even a worst case scenario is not only rising prices and wages not keeping up, but the other possibility is that you get significant recession and then ultimately uh, large scale unemployment from the inflationary boom and bust cycle. So there's a lot of reasons why we need to think beyond and look beyond uh, a politician offering us something for free. But it hasn't happened yet. Uh, our debt's gone from 15 trillion, which I thought was horrible, to almost 30 trillion now. And people say, yeah, you libertarians keep saying it's going to do all these bad things. It hasn't. It's creating a great deal of havoc right now with inflation. But I think there's also the possibility of a destruction of a currency. Yes, that hasn't happened so far, but it happened in Germany. It's happened in Zimbabwe. It's happened in, in Venezuela. So you can, a country can destroy a currency. And people say, oh, not America. We're the world's reserve currency. Now, there is a time, there is a breaking point at which even the United States uh, can destroy its currency. We've been lucky over the years in that we export um, our inflation. So we buy more stuff than we sell. You know, we import more than we export. And as we pay for those imports, we pay, pay for them with infl inflationary dollars. Many of those, I mean, you can go to different parts of Africa where you trade your currency and you'll see dollar bills floating around a village. That's how they trade for their currency. So those dollars not coming back has actually lessened some of our inflation. But is there a point in time when other countries actually begin to doubt and those dollars fled back home? I think there is that point. And I think you can get to a point of no return. And it doesn't always happen gradually. You don't always go from 5% inflation to 8%. Maybe we go from 5% to 15%, to 25%, to 100%. So uh, there has to be voices for fiscal sanity. And I think a lot of people do believe in the common sense uh, part of this that you can't, uh, in your family budget, spend money you don't have with impunity. It's the same for our country. It just may take a longer period of time. I agree. We can't spend money we don't have forever. You can stretch your rubber band further and further, but at some point, it's going to break. Inflation can explode quickly. And then you get the devastation seen in countries governed by ambitious fools, many of them socialists. Paul writes about that in his book. You start with because eating your pets is overrated? That's not fair. We're talking about Venezuela here. The contrast is between the general population, which has lost about 20 pounds, not from dieting because there's a lack of food, and contrast that with Dear Leader. You know, you contrast that with Maduro, who's probably gained 50 pounds. In fact, I think it really sums up socialism in a way. There's still a well-fed top 1%. They just happen to be the government or those who are cronies or friends of the government. People are eating their pets in yeah, Venezuela? It's desperate. We tell the story of one young lady who was 16 years old and she's part of a gang, but her territory are several trash dumpsters and she keeps other people from foraging for food in those because she's in charge of those trash dumpsters for her and her gang to forage for food. That's pretty desperate times. So you'd think you wouldn't have to write a book to make the case. 
That's what a lot of people respond. They say a case against socialism wasn't that decided. The case against Marx was decided, you know, by Bamba Verk and the economists in the 19th century. Von Mises said you, calculations impossible under socialism. All these arguments have been made. And then you see the 20th century, Hitler socialism, Stalin socialism, Mao socialism. You would think people would have recognized by now but each time, I think the, so the socialists shift position because there were socialists in our country who thought Stalin was a good idea. There were ones who were reading the little red book of Mao and thought he was a good idea. And then they eventually shift to something else. You know, Bernie Sanders thought Castro was pretty good for a while. He educated the kids, gave them health care, totally transformed the society. He thought Chavez was good, but then they finally shift. And you know where they all wind up? They all wind up saying, ah, but the kinder, gentler socialism that we want is Scandinavia. That's the kind of social, democratic socialism in Scandinavia. When I talk about democratic socialism, I'm not looking at Venezuela. I'm not looking at Cuba. I'm looking at countries like Denmark and Sweden. So we do a big chunk of the book in there talking about Scandinavia. I congratulate you. Unlike most political books, which are just platitudes fed by your advisors, you did some actual research about socialism and Scandinavia, for example. And you learned? We learned that uh, actually Bernie is too much of a socialist for Scandinavia, that uh, he probably could not get elected in any of the Scandinavian countries. And this is, uh, I think, a surprise to both him and to a lot of his supporters, because um, when he started talking about Denmark being socialist, the prime minister of Denmark came out publicly and said, Bernie, quit it. You're, you're bad for business. We are not socialist. And if the rest of the world thinks Denmark's socialist, they won't come here and invest money. Uh, Denmark is uh, far from a socialist planned economy. We found that basically it's not true that the Scandinavian countries are socialist. Basically, uh, they have private property, private stock exchange. When different freedom or economic indexes are listed, they're in the top 10 of the most free countries. Now, they do have a big welfare state. But we also learned that what Bernie promises and what AOC promises in our country is untrue. They say we're going to have a lot of free stuff that a socialist state gives you, but only the rich people are going to pay for it, only the top 1%. Turns out when you look at Scandinavia, everybody pays for it, particularly starting at the working class paying a 25% sales tax and then an income tax of 60% starting at 60000 And really, the rich in our country pay a lot more. 60% for people making $60,000 a year. So yeah. they, they hit the middle class. Yeah, and you know in our, in our country what you'd pay? Some people making 60000 might not pay any, but they'd pay very, very little, less than 10%. Particularly with the new tax cut, we've taken a lot of people off on the bottom and the middle off of our rolls completely. But the rich pay a lot more in our country than they actually do in Scandinavia. So his whole stick it to the rich uh, you know, thing that he's promoting isn't true in Scandinavia. He says in our country, the corporate income taxes, the evil corporations aren't paying enough. Well, guess what? In Scandinavia, they've been 15 points below our corporate rates for two decades. We finally just lowered our corporate tax rate with the most recent tax cut to where they are in Scandinavia. Now, Scandinavia did become kind of socialist around 1970. Right. One other thing I learned from your book that of 38 major businesses in, in Sweden, 36 were founded before 1970, just two cents. Yeah, ma many of the great successes of Swedish industry and businesses came in the earlier part of the century. The other thing that uh, they always promote is, oh, well, they live longer, they have higher incomes, all this stuff, and there's no poverty and everything, everybody's so happy there. 
And there's an anecdote we recite in there of Milton Friedman. So the Swedish economist comes up to him and he says, well, you know, in Sweden we have, we have no poverty. And, and Friedman responds and he says, well, yeah, in America we have no poverty among Swedish Americans. And so uh, the there's a great... culture. Yeah, the culture and it's, uh, it's, you know, maybe we don't know the exact reason, but Swedish Americans in America actually have much higher incomes, live longer, etc. Danish Americans have a 55% higher living standard than Danes. Swedish Americans, same thing. Yeah, so not only are they higher than the average American, they're actually higher than Swedes who live in Sweden and Danes who live in Denmark. So all across the board, there are reasons. And there's a man by the name of Sendaji who's written a lot of these statistics. And basically, he attributes it to cultural work ethic, that kind of thing. So they have socialized health care, though not totally. And I found it interesting that Swedish men live longer than American men. They did before they had socialist health care. For a long period of time, yes. So they live five years longer. So now that they have socialized health care, they still live five years longer. Exactly. No different. And so this is the trick of statistics. It's sort of cause and effect. You can say, oh, well, the Swedes live longer and they have socialized medicine. And yet, if you look hard at the statistics, you're exactly right. It started way before socialized medicine. Now Gallup says 57% of Democrats view socialism favorably. They don't really know what it is. That's the thing, is you can look at it and be really alarmed, which I kind of am alarmed. It's part of the reason why my wife and I wrote this book, because we were seeing all these polls of young people who were saying, you know what, over 50% of young people just in general, not just Democrats, but 50% of all young people think socialism is a good idea. But Reason and others have done follow-up polls, and they say, well, what is socialism? And like only about 15 or 16% of these people know or would attribute it that it means the government owning, you know, the means of production or owning most property. And so I think really, and we talk some about this because really the danger is, one, they don't know what it is, but they say they're for it. But the danger also is there for some vague things. And if you read the Democrat Socialists of America, AOC's party, and you read their, their website, the things they're for, they've, they've made it to sound really good. It's sort of like we're for fairness and we're for equality. So we try to point out in the book that the only way you can enforce those things is you have to have an equality police or a fairness police, and ultimately they show up with truncheons, and we talk about how that's happened in societies. The Red Guard, we tell a story of the Red Guard coming uh, to a friend of mine's mother's house, a friend of mine who's an ophthalmologist in Nashville. His dad was a physician, his mom was a physician. He was born a few years before me and was brought up when the Cultural Revolution came about. Mao said, nobody goes to school. See how big a country China is. Nobody went to college for like four or five years. And he tried to study secretly in his dad's med school class because his dad taught med school until the government caught him. And he was guilty of you know, trying to learn illegally. But one day the raid guard came to his mother's lab and she heard they were coming and she ran through the streets to try to stop them. But they beat her within an inch of her life, broke bones throughout her body and she laid in bed for a year until she could heal and then she was exiled. And people say, oh, that's not what we want. We want Scandinavia. But one of the themes of the book is, is violence inherent to socialism? Yeah, you say a boot stamping on the human face forever. But that's not fair. They would say, today we're going to do it with kindness. Yeah. And maybe they will. And that's their other argument. It's, it's sort of going to be kinder and gentler. Why does it always lead to a boot stamping on your face forever? One of the uh, points and uh, that was made by several people, there's a, 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 a George Reisman has written about this, and he says that 
The reason you eventually get to violence is that if you want complete socialism, you want the government to completely own everything, you know, the real socialism that people say they want, you have to take the property from people. So if I tax you 50%, I'm taking 50% of your property and maybe you don't resist. But there comes a point in time when I come to your house and say four other families are going to live with you and I come to your factory and I take your factory from you. When all of these things happen, there's a point at which there's resistance. And it's not an accident that the best kind of socialist leader ends up having to be ruthless because you can't be a kind, a kinder, gentler socialist leader and get the property. So as you get like, you know, Pol Pot in Cambodia, he really dramatically wanted socialism. He wanted it quickly and he sent all the people from the city into the country and he made everybody equal almost immediately when he could. He collectivized all the farms, but it required the killing of millions of people. I mean, that's where you, people talk about the killing fields of Cambodia. All right, but the American socialists wouldn't do that. Right. Um, that's what they say. And if they want sort of to go halfway through a democratic welfare state, maybe they can get there. It's going to be majority rule. I was recently at Columbia University and I made the point to them is that something that a majority passes doesn't make it right or acceptable. And I think Martin Luther King got this in the letter from Birmingham jail. He writes that an unjust law is one that a majority passes but doesn't make binding on themselves. So it's more complicated than just a majority passing a law. It's sort of this equal protection or equal justice that everybody is treated the same by the law. But if they really want socialism where they're gonna take the property, I think in the end it requires violence. They also have to explain why time after time, you know, was Hitler an anomaly? Was Stalin an anomaly? Was Mao an anomaly? Was Castro? I mean, we have all of these examples. It's not like we have one-offs, you know, of a, an occasional despot or dictator. We have a whole lineage of them. In fact, it's hard to look back historically and find some great democratic socialists who, who didn't evolve into authoritarianism, even the ones who were originally elected. Where are these angels, you write? This claim of selfless rulers appeals to people, but they just don't appear. And this is a, another sort of argument against this, and this has been an argument for a long time. You know, Plato talked about having these uh, selfless uh, philosopher kings. Uh, Karl Popper, who we quote a lot in here, was really one of those who looked at that and said, well, it justifies man na man's nature. Murray Rothbard said the same. And so the Soviets, as they did it, they said, well, yeah, it defies man's nature, but we're going to reshape man's nature, and we're going to have a new Soviet man. So even the Soviets admitted people weren't ready for this, but they and this whole this dialectical materialism that Marx talked about, we were going to eventually get there. And you get there, I guess, um, it takes some brute force ultimately to get there, but they never have gotten there, and that's why we have some discussion of utopia, is that the idea of man's perfectibility, maybe man is not perfectible, but really, how do you want to get to these different places you get? Are you going to get there through the force of government, or are you going to let society evolve through the voluntarism of people trading with each other? With socialism, if you want to have equality of outcome, you know, if everybody's going to be the same in the end, in the ultimate end, everybody's going to be the same, the law has to treat them unequally because everybody's different. You know, I, I mentioned to the kids in the auditorium, I said, there's 400 kids in the auditorium. If we give you $1,000 and you go outside the door, 10 minutes later, you're going to start redistributing it. You're going to start trading each other for things. And two days later, somebody's going to have more money and some less. But to make you all equal again, if I have to keep equalizing you every day, I've got to treat you unequally. I've got to punish those right. who are successful Most people more. would say, that's fair. Some of us have an advantage. If I'm rich, take more from me. That's just just. 
I guess, though, if you replace what we have, which is largely based on merit, with somebody else deciding it, is then the government deciding it. And you are right. There will be always a redistrib redistribution of wealth, but it ends up being done by either government or a system where it's done voluntarily. And a lot of times people talk about in, in our country or in countries that are more free that we have a democratic capitalism. And the reason it's, Democrat, it's democratic that's the ultimate democracy. It's a direct democracy every day. You vote either for Walmart or you vote for Target or you vote for Kroger. You vote with your feet, with your wallet, and with your money. And the people who succeed are the people who get the most votes, which are dollars. And as long as it's free and there's no coercion, it seems to me that that would be the, the most just way of distributing a, a nation's economy as opposed to who you elect someone to office and if you give them money or you're friends of theirs, then you get the benefits of getting more than others would. The cure for failed socialism is always more socialism. I think that um, each time they've tried it, they say, well, the, we didn't have real socialism. And this is a common complaint. As you, as you look through history, it's sort of like, you know, um, what does Castro's complain? He says, it's all, the, all America's fault. You know, socialism would have worked except for America, you know, not trading with us. Or Venezuela. Still in Venezuela, most of the complaints are it's, you know, foreigners manipulating their currency and doing things to their currency. It's never the fault of socialism. So then you get more and you get more and you get more. And ultimately, um, it, it uh, typically has descended into violence. Socialism and climate change alarmism go together. In a way, because there are, if you read some of the leaders in the um, climate change or the climate alarmism group, what you'll find is they'll, they'll explicitly tell you that it's less about pollution and more about redistributing wealth from the richer nations to the poorer nations. So they don't even hide this from view that it really is about redistributing wealth. When you look at these accords, like the Paris Accord, well, you know, what the U.S. has to do is quite dramatic. What India and China have to do is much less dramatic, where the pollution that they're measuring is coming from is much greater from the, from the, uh, from the developing nations than it is from the advanced nations. America's part socialist. Yes, we're sort of in the middle. And we talk a little bit about that because one of the arguments from socialists is that, oh, well, you say it takes force to redistribute wealth. Well, we already do it, so we already are using force. And I guess my response to that is, yes, all government requires force. As my father often said, yes, taxation is theft. But that's why we want not a lot of it. We want as, as little as we can possibly have and still have a country. And so I think it's an argument for minimizing the amount of force that government uses. And government does have to use force through taxation. So we want to have the minimal amount of government, the minimal amount of taxation. And then there are some who argue for no government, but there are some of us who say, you know what, we really do need some government. We just don't want too much that we want to maximize our liberty, which means we want government to be as small as possible. But most Americans seem to be saying, we want more. I mean, when you ran for president, I had high hopes this was going to be the libertarian moment. The crowd was cheering, run, Rand Paul, run, Rand Paul. You came up and said, we have come to take our country back. Right. What happened? I would say that um, either the people aren't ready or perhaps the people in the Republican primary aren't ready. I think the thing about being a libertarian, uh, someone who's fiscally conservative, but also tolerant, and then also believes that our foreign policy has been uh, too interventionist around the world, is that it captures a little bit of everybody. 
You know, there are people in the Democrat Party who actually believe with some of the foreign policy and some of the privacy and some of the personal liberty. There are people in the Republican Party who believe in balanced budgets and fiscal responsibility. They're not all in the same party. So when you run for president, it's difficult. And people say, well, run as an independent or run as a libertarian. That's also very difficult because the rules have been um, skewed for a long time, how you get on the ballot, et cetera, et cetera, and that it's hard to get to a, a certain number as a third-party candidate where people say, oh, I'm not just throwing my vote away. I'm going to vote because now you actually have a chance. Um, so it's difficult. I don't know when it happens. I can tell you uh, there weren't enough people in Iowa for us to think that we could go on. But there still is a movement out there, and there still are people that uh, see a little bit of uh, what Republicans do as well, a little bit of what Democrats do as well, and think that there would be um, some way to bring those, those movements together. Please share and like this video. If you want to help us make more, click that button. No CRT! There's a fight now about CRT. Critical race theory. No justice! No peace! CRT argues that racism is endemic to America, that every American institution exists to uphold white supremacy. White human beings thought there's a world here and we own it. Rutgers professor Brittany Cooper promotes CRT. Look, I think that white people are committed to being villains in the aggregate, right? They, they actually aren't mad because critical race theory is just a theory. They are mad because critical race theory is an accurate account of American history. These parents call CRT racial propaganda and don't want it taught in schools. I will ban critical race theory. Glenn Youngkin was elected governor of Virginia after opposing it while media mocked him. I'm gonna ban critical race theory. That is like us banning the ghosts. CRT is not taught in schools, they say. There are no ghosts. There isn't critical race theory taught. This is a multi-million dollar industry. Azra Namani did what more journalists should do. She filed Freedom of Information Act requests that forced school districts to reveal that they're paying consultants to spread critical race theory. I have the proof. We found 300 plus contracts and counting, like every day I'm getting a new contract. For them to deny it is just part of their campaign. But that's just for teachers, says the CNN guest. Can it influence the way that some teachers teach? Uh, yeah, but that's a good thing, right? Because race and racism is literally the building box of this country. They want to look at all of society through issues of race. Nomani calls that propaganda that's claiming our children. How is it claiming the children? That's exaggeration. This idea that we have of critical race theory has become this phenomena of woke baby. Books like these are now part of the curriculum. Can I see that? Yeah. This one is A is for activist. Each letter promotes a different form of protest. N is for no, 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 no. Yes to what we want. Educate, organize. It's like a union recruiting manual. Yeah. Is this really taught in schools? It is used in our schools. Like every example that I have is from our K through 12 system. This book's supposed to teach kindergarten kids about America's violent white supremacy. Dude, we can see your pointy tail. Contract, binding you to whiteness, you get stolen land, sign away your soul. So white people are the devil. Yeah. You know, that's pretty over the top. But look, how much influence does this author have on 
school kids. One or two books like this. I think it's devastating. I mean, just imagine if a black child was to get a book like this that said blackness is a bad deal. The author says, I made a book for white children that encourages them to connect with their heartbreak about racism. It's filled with shame. It should not be done with children. Your time is up, ma'am. You all Your time is up, ma'am. Nomani fights a lonely fight against her woke school board. Down. Next speaker. Continue to Next shut us down. Next speaker. They have tried to humiliate us, shut us up, uh, denigrate us. School boards don't like parents criticizing them, nor do teachers' unions. Teaching the truth is not radical or wrong. That was the message today from the president of one of the largest teachers' unions. Teaching the truth is not wrong. And America has a history of racism. Yeah, and we have to confront it. But America does not have a monopoly on racism. I come from a nation of people of, quote, color, and they are racist to each other. India, where she was born, has long had a caste system. Untouchables can't use this public well because even their touch would pollute the water. Slavery began in the Middle East and thrived in Africa long before slaves were brought to America. And it was actually Americans who helped end the practice. But today, many college students think America invented slavery. It says F America with the KKK in it. This poster was put up in a Los Angeles school. This is now state-sponsored indoctrination. It's not indoctrination, they say. It's just trying to make things more tolerant for people. It is a bigotry that they are teaching and a shaming that they're doing of our children. It's just so immoral. I am a brown Muslim woman, an immigrant in America, and I know more freedoms in this country than I could in any Muslim country in the world. But they're not in a Muslim country, they're in America, and there is still racism here. But to suggest that this is all of America is as racist and bigoted as it is to be racist and bigoted against people of color. Government officials, school systems are captured by this extreme and sometimes idiotic philosophy? They are. And that's what everybody has to understand. Like, why should every single person care? Because it's the taxpayers that are funding this. This is state-sponsored indoctrination. One solution is school choice. Let parents take their tax money to a school they choose. Right now, most choices are made by people like the teachers' union. Teaching the truth is not radical or wrong distorting history and threatening educators for teaching the truth is what is truly radical. Hope you enjoyed this video. Please click that button to help us make more.